Where are you located? Just curious. Are you in um, I was, I'm born and raised in New York City, Queens, but we just moved to Virginia like two years ago. Okay. <laughs> Where in Virginia? Charlottesville. Oh, I have a friend who lives there. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Not my thing. Okay. Well, guys, welcome back. And today we have a super special guest. It's Dr. Emily Horowitz, who is a clinical psychologist. And we are going to be talking about something that I have recently become very fascinated with, which is the clinical use of psychedelics to help with trauma. Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Horowitz. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Cool. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the work you're working on right now uh, and maybe what you find the most fascinating about it? Um, sure. So I am working right now on um, phase three clinical trials uh, for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, these trials are being run by an organization called MAPS, um, which stands for, it's a mouthful, <laughs> uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, and this organization has been around for you know, many decades now, actually. They've been working for years to try to be, have MDMA become a legalized medicine. Um, it was legal, um, in the 70s and 80s until it was outlawed. Um, and it had been used in the past as a therapeutic tool for mostly for couples therapy, um, because as I'll talk about, you'll see why it's good for that. <laughs> um, but it's also really, really good for trauma because the way that the MDMA works um, on the brain and also just in the whole system of the body um, and mind, it, it really does help a person be able to approach and not avoid and to process um, traumatic events. Um, so I'm really blessed to be a therapist on the phase three trials um, where I work, you know, can work with this medicine in a legal way. <laughs> and hopefully it will become more widely accessible, you know, soon, sooner than later, hopefully. Um, but it's fascinating work. It really is. Um, it's just truly amazing how people can, I think the most amazing thing about it is how people can talk about events that are just so beyond traumatic and disturbing um, in a way where they're actually not disturbed by it. Um, and that they can actually start to approach and reflect and process stuff that they've avoided for years in many cases, um, or just not been able to even remember sometimes. Um, at all, uh, which is pretty incredible. Um, or just not remember fully, I should say, really. Um, but the MDMA just opens up a door in the brain that can really help you help a person to process their trauma, which is, of course, you know, something that's understandable that they've avoided. And right now, the research that you're doing is specifically on veterans or anyone with PTSD? No. Um, anyone with PTSD. Um, yes. But specifically with PTSD. Yes, specifically with, with PTSD and in particular, um, pretty extreme PTSD, meaning people who have um, pretty severe um, symptoms. And from a clinical perspective, what is the difference between PTSD um, and maybe trauma or is PTSD considered trauma? What is 
how are you defining PTSD when you look for people to have within the research? So, yeah, I mean, trauma, a lot of people can become, I mean, trauma is, is everywhere, right? I mean, it's everywhere in our world, unfortunately. Um, but not everybody who experiences trauma goes on to experience PTSD. Um, actually, most people who experience trauma do not wind up experiencing PTSD. And, um, you know, there's a lot of research out there that has looked into why some people are more susceptible or what makes you more susceptible to developing PTSD. And generally, um, actually having earlier traumas, like a childhood trauma, makes you more susceptible to developing PTSD from like an adult, after an adult trauma. Um, but there's different types of PTSD. There's like complex PTSD, there's more simple PTSD. Um, but basically it requires a traumatic event um, to get diagnosed with PTSD. There has to have been a traumatic event that either you witnessed or heard about or experienced yourself. Uh, where you thought your life was in danger or somebody else's life was in danger. Um, and then there's a whole host of symptoms that go along with PTSD, um, mainly avoiding, uh, avoiding talking about the trauma, um, increased startle response, um, or like hypervigilance, like you're constantly looking over your shoulder, looking out for danger. Um, loud noises can make you jump. Um, avoiding talking about the trauma or things that you associate with the trauma, um, avoiding even people, um, because trauma can really shatter a person's worldview and makes it hard for people to get close to people. Um, so often a lot of people who have PTSD will be very isolated or just very withdrawn from people in their lives um, that they were close to before. Um, there's a lot of survivor's guilt, um, um, let me just see notes here. Um, um, it's like a startle response, um, feeling detached or estranged from other people, um, emotional numbing, not being able to feel your feelings. That's very common with PTSD. Um, anger, irritability, rage, uh, sleep problems, relationship problems, obviously. Um, concentration problems. And then of course, there's, it can lead to drug and alcohol abuse and also to suicide. That's the, the worst outcome. Um, but for the study, I mean, we do ask, we do give, um, ask, you know, we give them um, basically questionnaires to see how severe their, their PTSD is and if they, if they even have PTSD at all. And then of course, how severe it is. And it has to be uh, go over a certain cutoff to be eligible for the study. Okay. And so someone will come in and give you the symptoms of what they're experiencing. And then that's what you use to compare to see if, I mean, within a series of other complex situations, whether or not what you're using is working, like have there been examples where people are so withdrawn, but after their third session with you, all of a sudden they're able to open up. What are some of the things that have really surprised you about the MDMA and helping people with PTSD? Um, well, I guess what's been surprising is, I mean, just generally speaking, I guess people, you know, I've, I mean, because it's a study and I haven't been able to work with a huge amount of people so far, it's been, you know, I think three people so far that I've first, four people that I've personally worked with. Um, but what's, a, what's been very interesting is just how multi-layered 
a human is. I mean, we all, we all kind of know this anyway, but as, I mean, so in the research study, let me just step back for a sec. They get three um, MDMA sessions, but it's also a double blind study. So some people get placebo and some people get MDMA, but either way they're getting three eight hour psychotherapy sessions with two therapists at a time. So it's really a lot of therapy that they're getting. Um, you know, so there is a difference obviously, you know, between placebo and getting the, the actual MDMA. Um, but when a person has the actual MDMA, um, or even if they don't, maybe, it's amazing how with eight hours of therapy and then multiply that times three, there's a lot of time and space for people to go into a lot of different things. So where a person comes in and says their, we call it their index trauma, like their, their worst trauma that happened to them. That's kind of what they're there to really work on. But yet, of course, because everything is so interconnected, there's so much more uh, under the surface that comes up as a person is in that space with MDMA and also just having that many hours of therapy. Um, and it's amazing how just, there's always so much more trauma under the surface and even things that people weren't really aware of come up to the surface later, um, which is pretty interesting. That's something that I find so fascinating, particularly with the psychedelics is how tricky the mind is and how layered and complex. And, you know, even if you think you've been doing all this healing through the alternative or Western side, there's always some loop that you can't get yourself out of that you need an alternative perspective. So I am so fascinated with how deep and tricky and complex the mind goes. Oh yeah, it's incredible how multi-layered it is. And yeah, I mean, always when you think you've done, you've done work, there's always more to go. <laughs> um, I don't know if we ever get to the destination of like fully healed. I mean, we're, I, I don't know, I think we're, we're onions, right? That have so many layers that just, there's constantly more layers to peel back. Um, we're, the mind is so complex. We we still don't know hardly anything about it, really. Um, but Which yeah. is cool. Which is cool. Yeah, it's cool. There's it's, there's something unchartered. That's good. <laughs> um, when you were deciding to do clinical research, what stuck out about MDMA that made you wanna do well, that? And also, can you talk? Can you explain what MDMA is? Yeah. Um, sure. Well, I'll I'll answer your first question first. So. I mean, I, I didn't set out to be a clinical researcher. I'm actually more of a, a clinician, um, but I've always been interested in psychedelics since I was, you know, a high schooler, <laughs> college and stuff like that. And um, always just felt like I kind of missed out on the 60s. I felt like I should have been born then. But um, when the opportunity came around to do research on psychedelics, I, um, was really, really lucky and blessed to just find myself in the right place at the right time to get the training through maps and then to um, get to work on the study. So I probably wouldn't really be working on research if it weren't this type of research, to be honest with you. Um, but this is very exciting research. So um, I always sort of forget the, hold on one second here, MDMA. Um, I always forget kind of what it stands for. So it's also known as Molly or Ecstasy. Um, ecstasy is kind of like the street name um, where it's generally added to other substances and then pressed into a pill. And it could have a lot of other additives and it might not be pure. 
um, but Molly or MDMA is sort of the more pure form of this medicine. And um, it was actually developed um, in 1912 by a German chemist named Anton Kolisch. Um, and it was used actually as a blood clotting agent um, for, I guess, for combat experiences. Um, and then it was studied in the 50s by the US military and then synthesized again in the 1960s by a chemist named Sasha Shulgin, who's kind of a superstar in the psychedelic world. Um, he was a chemist that was able to synthesize a host of different materials that he would experiment on with himself and with his wife, who was a therapist and a community of therapists um, out in California. And then he would wind up sending it out to other therapists when they realized, um, hey, this has a lot of potential to be used for, for therapy and especially with couples. Um, and I believe his wife, Ann Shulgin, um, has, she's a therapist and she, she worked with it, I believe, um, with couples. So um, it was used in the 70s and 80s in therapy and it was legal. Um, and then underground therapists, you know, were working with it as well. And then unfortunately, when the party rave culture came out in the 80s, um, it wound up becoming banned and scheduled as a schedule one substance, which means a schedule one means that it has a high potential for abuse and no real medicinal value. Um, so right now with the research, we're hoping it will be reclassified out of schedule one. Uh, but right now it's still in schedule one. And what is MAPS? I, um, I'm not totally familiar with them. Okay, so MAPS is a, an organization. It's a nonprofit organization. It stands for Multidisciplinary Associate, Association for Psychedelic Studies. And um, I forget when they were formed, but I think they've been around for at least 30 years. And um, they, it's sort of their mission to make psychedelic medicines as medicines for legalized medicines for to help people and help humanity. Um, and they're really mostly focused on MDMA at this point, although they, they do some research with other substances as well. But I think the reason that they're focused, I know Rick Doblin is the, uh, the head of MAPS and he talks about um, how he decided on, on starting with MDMA because it's such a gentle medicine and because it has so much potential to help people who are really, you know, in a very bad way, people with trauma and particularly veterans. I think that's been part of his mission too, is to help veterans um, heal from war. Um, and the MDMA is a really good medicine for that. And I think he just felt that it had maybe the most potential to be approved sooner than other hallucinogenic types of psychedelics um, because MDMA is actually considered more of an empathogen and not so much of a hallucinogen. Um, How would you see it used if it was legalized? That also in the control setting where there would be two therapists and an eight hour session? Or, or yeah. is that like prove it first and then we'll figure out how we use it? Um, well, that's a good question. I think we'll for sure prove it first <laughs> and then we'll figure out how we'll use it. But I, I believe that um, what's gonna happen is well, first of all, it did, it did get breakthrough status with the FDA in 2017, which means it was sort of fast-tracked for approval. Um, still not approved yet. And I think what's going to happen is um, MAPS has, a, has um, another nonprofit arm that they, are, um, they were able to synthesize or, or create their own 
laboratory made MDMA that's, you know, super research grade, you know, pure MDMA, that they will be the only people that can legally distribute that medicine. So in order to be able to work with that medicine as a therapist, you'll have to have gone through MAPS's therapy program, training program, MDMA assisted psychotherapy training program, which they, they are offering now. Um, there's several stages to the, to the, to that um, training program, including, um, I think there's an online component, there's a self-study component, and then there's, um, well, I guess now it's probably online, but there were in-person trainings before COVID, um, you know, where you, you go for like a long weekend or I don't know if it's a week or a long weekend, but um, you go and you study with MAPS clinicians um, who, you know, basically train you on how to, how to do this work. Um, and then um, eventually you get certified as an MDMA assisted psychotherapist. And then um, I don't know how they'll wind up being able to distribute the medicine and is it going to have to be under an MD that, you know, you're, I don't know how that's going to work. But, um, well, I was just wondering because right, so right now someone does what? How much of the product do they take, and how long is the session? So the session is eight hours. Um, so, but be, let me just step back for a sec. So, the research protocol is um, after their the enrollment period is actually pretty intensive and can take a while. Um, there's a lot of screening and questionnaires and medical exams and things like that to make sure that you're safe. Because not everybody's, and then like not everybody's signing up for like a. Yeah, it's actually a pretty long and intensive process to to get enrolled into the study. Once you're enrolled, um, you actually get 12 90-minute psychotherapy sessions with the two therapists. So the way it's structured is you get three prep sessions. They're each 90 minutes long. Then you get one dose, we call it dosing session, which is the eight hour day. And then that's followed by three more integration, integration psychotherapy sessions that are 90 minutes each, then another eight hour dosing session, then another three psychotherapy sessions, then another dosing session, then another three psychotherapy sessions. So it's not just the MDMA session, they are getting a ton of therapy um, to prepare for the work and then also to help them integrate it. And how long is the period of, is it one week between the 12 sessions? Um, it really depends, but it's, um, the whole course could be generally four months or so. And it's basically minimum of one month in between each session. I mean, there's, it's like four to six weeks in between each dosing session, but the other sessions can, it, it depends on the schedule and how it fit, how it works out. But, but, always after the dosing session, they sleep over, um, they sleep at the site. Um, there's, and we have a night attendant who stays with them overnight so that they're not alone. And then the next morning, the therapists come back and do the, the first integration session the very next day. And that's, that's always happening. And then where the other ones get scheduled kind of depends on everyone's schedule. And during the eight hour session, are you communicating with them to work through whatever they're experiencing? Yeah. Or it's yeah. So basically, like, so with the eight-hour session, we don't know if they're getting MDMA or placebo. So the therapists don't know. Oh, you don't know either. Yeah, that's what double-blind means. It means that the therapists don't, the researchers don't know, and the participant does not know. 
and we don't know until after the study is over and the data is analyzed and they, uh, they do what's called unblinding where they, they look and see, okay, was that, did this person get placebo or did they get MDMA? Um, and it's not always obvious actually, believe it or not. Um, you would think, oh, you'd know if you got MDMA or not, but actually sometimes it's not that obvious. <laughs> um, but so depending on what, either way, what, you know, they're taking something and it may be MDMA or it may not be MDMA, it's a pill. Um, and the, during the eight hour session, so basically what happens is um, it's, it's non, it's really participant directed. So the therapists don't have an agenda. We're not there to, um, you know, get you to talk about something in particular or have it go a certain way. We're really just there to hold space and help guide the person. But the MAPS um, model for this work um, really talks about what's, what they call an inner healer. Um, or inner healing intelligence that we all have inside of us. Whether, I like to call that like your, you know, kind of like your higher mind or your wise mind or um, your, almost like a, a, your, your own ally for yourself. You know what I mean? And the medicine, this, this work kind of helps, the frame for this work is sort of like, okay, let's get in touch with your inner healer, your inner healing intelligence and trust that that knows what you need to heal in this session and knows what, you, what needs to be brought up for you so that you can get the healing that you need. And sort of, we have the intention, right? Like, okay, I wanna heal this trauma, but then we sort of step out of the way and let that inner healer come to the fore and show us what we need. And the session is kind of a flow between the person going inside and checking in with their inner healer and just seeing what naturally arises and then also talking about stuff. And then the therapist can also help kind of guide and ask certain questions or, you know, help the person go a little bit deeper with it um, to sort of guide where that goes. Um, but generally, you know, the only, you know, we, we don't really, I don't know, we don't really steer it in a certain direction. However, um, we do, we, if the person does not bring up the trauma, we will at some point in the session ask them about that. Um, but we don't force it, you know, but um, generally speaking, it comes up anyway. Of <laughs> course. Um, but um, I don't know, does that answer that question? But yeah, yeah. it's a combination yeah. of like, there's some moments where we try to get the person to just go inside and be, be inside because a lot can happen when you're inside yourself in silence. However, I, I think a lot of people who have gone through a lot of trauma have a really hard time doing that. And it might take, um, you know, till the second or third session till they're really able to spend more than a few minutes inside themselves. That's what I found. I think because there's so much trauma that they haven't talked about before, they need to get it out. They need to, they need to tell their story. They need to, you know, share their experience with another person or in this case, two people um, so that they can, you know, process it. And there's a lot to process. So I think, and also because of trauma, so, you know, it's layered. Yeah, exactly. It's really hard to just sit and be in that space and that silence when there's a lot of fear. And there can still be fear even with the MDMA. Um, it doesn't take away all the fear, but um, it really does 
help a lot to get the person to talk about it. It's almost like a truth serum where <laughs> so much just comes out like, the person is, oh, and this and this and this. And, you know, it's really, yeah. <laughs> I realize they're totally different things, but I am very drawn to and fascinated with ayahuasca. And I know these are totally two very separate things, but it's interesting as a perspective of somebody who is looking at all the ways in which somebody can a, help themselves that there are a lot of parallels between and also like the language that you used of the inner healer that I feel like a lot of this is just a way to get that most powerful self to come through um, I don't know if you are allowed to answer this but do you do you personally um, believe in MDMA or are you not allowed to say that yet or um, personally what do you mean like you believe in the product as a way for somebody to heal. Oh yeah, absolutely. I do. I mean, I, I think I can say that. Um, well, I mean, look, there has been research already done. Um, the phase two trials had incredible data. 58% um, of the participants didn't have PTSD um, two months later. And then I think it was 64% or I'm not sure, six, in the 60s percent, um, after a year didn't have PTSD. And comparing that to other treatments that are available right now, like exposure therapy or cognitive processing therapy or pharmaceutical drugs, um, you know, it, those are about 50% efficacy rates. So yes, I can say, I think MDMA has a lot <laughs> of potential to be an amazing treatment for, for trauma. Cool. Um, I am curious also because the <laughs> product existed and was used in this form and then was made illegal and disappeared and is now coming back and the trials do show that there are ways in which this product helps um are you able to talk about what you feel like happened that now people have to prove that this product works well um I think any medication has to be proved to work, whether it's a, like a psychedelic drug or a pharmaceutical drug, um, has to go through trials, right? I mean, Zoloft had to go through studies too before it became an approved treatment for PTSD. I think, you know, if it weren't outlawed in the 80s, you know, maybe it would already be approved by now. Maybe it would have gotten studied in a more, you know, formalized way and been approved by now and we may it might already have there might be already clinics out there available to people it might already be at the VA hospitals it might already be you know widely available if it had not been outlawed in the 80s but you know I mean I think there were various forces at work there yeah I mean because I know so many the suicide rate now amongst veterans is the highest that's ever been and it's in incredibly heartbreaking the way that we treat the soldiers and so many of them have been torn and they have seen so many things and you wonder why there aren't more resources available and then when you hear about things that could have helped you have to wonder yeah where where was that that time lag that yes all products need to be vetted and and proved their efficacy but also we wasted like 40 years right you yeah, know, it's a long time, and that's a lot of lot of suicides and a lot of people suffering that could have hopefully probably been avoided. If that's the case. Yeah, um, 
So the people who have gone through, have you noticed a difference? Have you had someone go through a full cycle yet? Yes. Yes. And you've noticed the difference when they began and when they finished? Oh, yeah. I mean, I unfortunately, I can't speak about um, any specifics right now because the research hasn't been published yet, which I think it will be very soon. Um, but basically what I could say is that, yes, I mean, incredible, incredible differences. Um, people, you know, I mean, not that the PTSD completely goes away, but I think the intensity goes away enough that people can really start doing more with their lives, um, you know, and being more, you know, full members of society where they're, you know, more fully realized as <laughs> who they are, you know, they more self-confidence, more um, better relationships. Um, yes. And I know this isn't your sub, you're not, you focus on PTSD, but I'm curious if you have an opinion about using this for manic depression um, anxiety? Um, I don't know about manic depression. Um, I don't know, because I think that's a very, a more tricky, um, illness where there's a lot more brain involvement, brain chemical involvement. And because of the serotonin involvement that's used with MDMA, like it basically tricks the brain into dumping a lot of serotonin. Um, people who have manic depression, I don't know. I mean, I would be concerned about giving them too much serotonin and then them that may be destabilizing them further. Um, but in general anxiety, yeah, I think, I think it, MDMA could probably help a whole host of different diagnoses um, without a doubt. And I think, I think trauma does underlie a lot of the, 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 the diagnoses, right? It's not, I mean, Maybe it's not PTSD per se, but I think everybody's been through trauma in their lives on one level or another. And I think that all contributes to depression, anxiety, uh, many of the things that plague us in modern society. Yeah, I mean, I think about all the like SSRIs and how many people are on some form of something and that um, probably there is, uh, because I know that stabilizes, it doesn't necessarily not cure, but help heal. And that if there is a core element to whatever it's stabilizing, that if there is something that can get to the core, that there, that there may be more benefit in that. Oh yeah. Sure. Um, you just said that it, the MDMA tricks the body into releasing serotonin. Can you talk about what is happening? Like what, what is happening when someone takes MDMA? Yeah. So, it, like I said, it does flood the brain with serotonin, um, which, you know, serotonin is a natural, like the antidepressant, right? It's something that makes you feel good. It makes you feel safe and secure and cared for. And um, it's like the, the love drug in a sense, you know, it like dumps all this nice stuff into your brain that um, makes you feel like you're safe and you're supported and you're cared for and you're, um, you know, you're relaxed, it helps relax you. It also, you know, quiets down the limbic system, which is the part of the brain that's triggered with trauma, you know, the fight or flight and all that stuff. It helps kind of calm that down so that you can then, you know, approach the trauma that you've been avoiding. Um, 
but you know, generally speaking, people, I mean, it's interesting because it's like thinking about how it's used in a rave culture versus how it's used therapeutically. And it's amazing how people will say, after they've used it therapeutically, they'll say, I can't even imagine dancing to, on this or being in a club on this or, you know, like. You know, if 13 year old me could know what I was <laughs> talking about right now. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, I, you know, it's just got, it's a very different set and setting, you know, but um, setting, set and setting is a big term in this work, by the way, uh, set meaning your mindset, like your intention, why you're doing it, what you're doing it for. And setting is the space that you're doing it in, you know, whether it's a club or a therapy office <laughs> with therapists, you know, or even with at home with, with a supportive friend or something like that. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, the person can feel a lot more relaxed. Um, they can feel calm, the body relaxes. And I mean, in the beginning, there's before it kind of takes effect, that's sort of the point where there's a little more anxiety because of the unknown or the what, what am I going to, what's going to happen? What, you know, the anticipatory anxiety and the fear, and that's part of the trauma, the PTSD. But once it kind of kicks in, it, the chemicals in the brain are flowing and it, it relaxes the person and um, gives them a sense of um, safety, security, um, you know, especially when there's a couple therapists in the room feeling supported. Um, helps them feel more connected to themselves and to other people. Sorry. Um, 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 it can also really, really enhance the therapeutic alliance. Um, you feel, you know, more bonded and closer to the people you're with. Uh, and then we know that the therapeutic alliance is actually the most important factor in successful psychotherapy. So while, you know, we work in the study to build therapeutic alliance through the, the prep sessions and the other work we do with the person, you know, this is the regular psychotherapy when, you know, so that when they're with the MDMA, they already feel hopefully a connection to the therapists, but the MDMA does sort of push it further, you know, to help a person feel safer and more supported and heard. Beautiful. Do they ever say like crazy things like I'm a monkey juggling on a skateboard on the moon? <laughs> um, no. Is that, that's more, I, that's yeah. more psilocybin or whatever. Um, you know, I think that's, that's probably a big difference between MDMA and other psych, you know, more hallucinogenic psychedelics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you do know, you never really lose the sense of who you are and that you're in a room on a couch doing therapy. Like you're, you're never, you don't really lose your, your ego. There's no like complete ego dis dissolution where there can be with, you know, maybe with ayahuasca or mushrooms or something like that. Um, MDMA, like, you know who you are, you know what you're doing, you know where you are, you're not so far gone, so to speak, that you're delusional or you're having hallucinations like that. And that's kind of one of the beauties of the medicine too, is, you know, you can still feel safe enough, especially for people with trauma, you know, who dissociate, for instance, a lot of people with, who have severe trauma do something called dissociation where they kind of disappear and they're not really here, you know? And MDMA definitely, you're here and you're able to process stuff. It's like almost like a clarity of mind.
I think that's really interesting. I had a wonderful childhood and an amazing life, very privileged, but at five, I disassociated. And I, that sort of pulled me into the world of wellness to try and figure it out because in 37 and nothing occurred, but I don't know if it was like I was a spiritual kid and then like becoming a person was hard. I don't know. But this, this associating from the body thing is um, something that I'm interested in. What is something that you wish people knew about either the research you're doing or MDMA uh, or PTSD? Just something like as you've been working, you're kind of like, oh, I really wish like more people knew this. Well, I guess, I mean, knowing about it in general, right? I mean, I think it's getting so much press these days that people are becoming more aware of it, but I think knowing about it in general, but also I think it's really, you know, it's not a magic pill. It's not a magic bullet. And I think people need to know that about it. Um, in fact, I think, you know, it's hard work. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a, you know, a little vacation from stuff. It's actually really intense, hard work. I mean, eight hours of psychotherapy is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> no, no, no. You know, confronting, you know, pretty awful traumatic material is really hard. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the media kind of plays it like, oh, this is the, the next best thing. This is the magic pill. And it's, it is work. And I think more often than not, people actually feel a little bit worse before they get better. And I think a lot of that is, you know, if you're able to really look fully at your traumatic experience, you know, it's, it's really upsetting, you know, it's very disturbing and it's very depressing in some instances, you know, and I think... I would like people to know that, you know, this is not easy stuff. This is really, really hard work. Um, it's not a magic pill and it takes patience and it takes commitment. Um, and like I said, you know, the healing process is not a linear process. It's up and down. And I think with this work, that's definitely the case. Sometimes people can get a little worse before they get better. I do think overall the arc is to get better. Um, and I really believe that very strongly that it is. But yeah, it's hard work. And I think a piece of this work that is just so incredibly important is the integration piece. I mean, the MDMA session is very important because, you know, look, you're, you're having an experience of not having the fear and the avoidance and the anxiety. And that's something that's so beautiful and special because people who have that much trauma don't really ever get to experience that, you know? And yet there's a lot of work that comes afterwards, you know, once you really see your trauma more fully, okay, how do you then integrate that into your life? How do you, you know, how do you take the insights and the lessons that you got in the MDMA session and bring that into your life? That's the work. That's the hard part, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, and um, you raise a good point that there's a tendency to glorify things when they sort of prove to be working and that there is the journey inward is so complex. And I think there's also this sense now of like, you can be healed when it's like you can work through a process and live a better life, but you're never healed. Like you're never in a state of everything is perfect. I'm perfect. Life is perfect. It's more, it's just like you can, you no longer have a, immediate reaction to when a loud noise goes off and you're able to sit in your body a little longer, but that there is never a thing that you can take or 
a process you can do where you're just like, life is great and easy and everything's perfect. Right. Exactly. I mean, life isn't, you know, like I think about that movie, um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, you know, where they just go and like erase their memories. And that actually was a treatment that they were working on for PTSD. And I, I think that's just crazy, right? Like to go in and erase certain, how do you even do that? But delete certain like files in your brain or something. But, you know, I mean, yeah, how do you, life, that's what life is. It's a, the healing journey is a process. I don't think we're ever, I said that earlier, like, I don't know if we ever really get there, you know, and maybe that's not the point. It's just, you know, so that things that happened in our past don't have the same weight anymore. You know, I mean, we can't go back and erase our past. We can't go back in time, but, you know, I think a lot of times people who have PTSD or, you know, the trauma is like still very much in the present, you know, they're still, they're reliving it. They're, they're having flashbacks. They're having, you know, it's like, it's like, it's still happening now. And I think this healing journey is to help it kind of be more part of your past. And then you can move, move forward into your future, into your life, but it's always going to be part of your story, but maybe it's just part of your story, not your, you know, the main part of your story or your identity. That's awesome. Um, is there anything you want to add that we didn't cover? Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess I just want to say, you know, that this, this treatment isn't for everybody. Um, you know, there's lots of different ways to heal. Thank goodness. You know, there's lots of different modalities out there. And, um, you know, I think it's a powerful one and it's a really, you know, really good treatment, um, but it's, it's not for everybody. And I just want to say that because I think it's important. Yeah. It's not for everybody. And if it is for you, that it is best done with yes, and professionals in a professional exactly. setting in a professional yes, environment. Yes. It goes without saying, but it should be said that yes, yes. Definitely <laughs> done with professionals. Um, you know, I don't know if two therapists are necessarily going to be needed. You know, I think it, it's nice to have the two therapists. Um, but you know, I don't know financially, you know, economically speaking, how this treatment will be able to be available to make it more affordable um, and just more accessible to people. But um, absolutely being done with a professional therapist is, is, um, is really important. Yeah, I'm curious also because there are so many um, victims of war. I mean, it's not just the soldiers. There's also people who are witnessing what's going on in their country and how do they, and that, and this becomes generational. They're passing down all of this unresolved trauma. And is this something that can help the, the citizens of countries that have experienced war? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes. I mean, one person gets traumatized and it does get passed down. I mean, they've even shown that it actually does get passed down through genes. But then also, I mean, just family dynamics and um, patterns that get passed down through generations. Um, you know, uh, thinking just an example, like um, a soldier in war, right? Gets traumatized, comes home from war. You know, there's, it's very common to have relationship problems with your spouse and with your kids. And I mean, all that gets passed down, right? So the, then your children are like, you know, trying to figure out, well, why is mom or dad so distant from me now and you know I mean it just or maybe there's violence or maybe there's drugs or maybe there's um, suicide even right it's all so interconnected 
and yeah, I mean, so many civilians that, that are killed in war, you know, way more than even soldiers that are killed in war and watching your town be bombed and destroyed. And yeah, it's, that's all traumatic. And yes, absolutely. You know, we do focus a lot on veterans, but you know, what about the civilians? It's true. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's, you know, especially, I know that you have a special place in your heart for veterans. So I really appreciate that. I do. And you know, I just want to um, give a shout out to veterans on who are listening today on the podcast. Um, and if people are interested in participating in, and in, in the trial, um, you know, personally, I, I really want veterans to apply and, um, be enrolled in the study. So, um, you can go to map, www.maps.org and then follow the prompts to, you can look for like how to enroll in our studies and there's a link and you can apply online. Um, and you know, if you're a veteran, please identify yourself as a veteran and, in, in, in that, and, um, there's anything I can do to help, um, I would be happy to. So. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for, for having me and being curious about the work. And yeah, it's really inter it's interesting stuff. Um, I'm just going to stop the recording. Uh